podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, a merger to represent Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. A lot going on in the macro markets, and we're going to have a great guest talking about uh, his outlook on the markets, uh, somebody we've had on the show before, and he, he does a lot of writing on ETFs and, and sort of how he's positioned. Uh, we'll, we'll get to him in a moment, but Professor, it's been a little while since we've got your market take. A lot of yeah. news this year. We got a great uh, sort of interesting employment report today. They had a Fed meeting, and you had a very robust January. So, looking forward to checking in on on your thoughts on on what's going on. Oh yeah, I mean, this not only has been a blockbuster week. Uh, this day, <laughs> uh, I, I counted, I think, twenty one uh, line items of data that have come across uh, my screen, my Bloomberg screen here, which I think is an all time record. I mean, the employment report, the ISM numbers. Uh, some of the delayed numbers from the government shutdown, etc. Uh, it really is is quite uh, stupendous. Let's, let's start out with this morning. This morning was a blockbuster. This morning was everything you could hope for. You know, we've talked about uh, how important the participation rate is and raising that to easing pressure on the labor market. And, and now um, it came in uh, two-tenths ahead of expected and actually nudged to a six-year high, 63.2%. Um, uh, and this actually brought the unemployment rate up to 4% and brought the U6 up uh, to 8.1, which gives you slack. Now, you know, we don't usually like to think about unemployment rates going up as being negative, but yet it gives us slack in the labor market and does not put pressure on wages, which is, you know, the, the, the thing that you're worried about in terms of putting pressure on costs that will lead to uh, inflation. So again, this this is absolutely great news. I mean, the the bottom line number is three hundred thousand, way above expectation. Of course, they did revise down by ninety thousand the previous uh, month, um, but e- even then, the trends are very strong. No signs whatsoever of recession. Uh, the only little thing was a little wobble on uh, jobless claims that we got yesterday. That was up much more than expected, but some of that could have been the California teachers strike. Uh, sending them up, but on all other data that, you know, that so-called recession scare is really kind of getting uh, out of the market. But then you had the Fed, as you know, gave everything the market wanted, pivoted to a wait and see. In my opinion, and I said this immediately after the December on our program, the report that they gave on Wednesday should have been the report that we had in December, (laughs) because actually it was then that they should have decided we're not going to raise any more. And, of course, the market sort of said, you better not. And they said, yeah, we're listening to the market. We're not going to do that. Um, And, of course, you had a unanimous, even as you know, uh, uh, James Bullard, who we hope soon to get back on. Ours, as you know, people have been listening to us, have had James Bullard, uh, the president of Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and one of the, and he was mentioned, but he was on CNBC this day, and, and they called him one of the foresightful people that saw early on that interest rates were not going to ever go up to the levels that they did before. So uh, that pivot was very important. Also, by the way, the statement about the balance sheet so important. They're they're going to leave a trillion dollars of, of uh, excess reserves in the banking system, which basically means I've looked at the at this balance sheet in detail. 
they aren't going to get rid of hardly any more treasuries. They are going to let their uh, mortgage-backed securities run off of their balance sheet, but that's not going to be disruptive. They're really not going to be reducing more. A trillion altogether, and almost all of that is going to be mortgage-backed securities. So that takes off a lot of pressure off the government market there and also eases concern that uh, we might get tightness in the reserve market. That's great for equities. This news Friday is great for equities. And equities have bounced back, of course, with all this great news coming. But I, I think that we got some, you know, more short-term momentum here. Yeah, no. When we talked to you at the end of the year, you thought maybe five to fifteen, and we sort of got half of that yeah. in January. So it's like, how yeah. much of it's is it front-loaded? Uh, well, you know, and- with this pivot and this strong news, uh, uh, you know, we, we've we've uh, we and we're in that range. Uh, so you know, maybe ten to twenty. Uh, which means only, you know, at the bottom end, a few percent more. Um, it is true, by the way, though. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned this last year. The 2019 figures for earnings were way too high, and I've been looking at every week, and they've been coming down almost a buck every week. Uh, you know, the guidance is not what they had. It was crazy to begin with. So, you know, in a way, the market kind of knew it, but it's really coming down. Uh, you know, I'm, but still, the, to give you the data, Right now, the market is selling about seven, little over 17 times last year's earnings. So, you know, even if earnings don't go up, that's not a high figure when you consider the interest rates are so stable now and the long bond is, you know, at uh, two and three quarters. And at this point, it's selling at slightly over 16 times this year's earnings, still a bit too high, even though it's come down. 16, 17 range, boy, in a low interest rate world is not an expensive market. So, you know, I can still see people piling in. And uh, again, I'm going to mention what I did before. We might see for the first time in a couple of years, value stocks really outperforming those growth stocks here in 2019. Yeah. I mean, I've looked at some valuations. When I look at the sort of small cap value, like we have a, uh, a sort of low PE oriented index that has v- PEs at 10 times, which mm-hmm. you got to go back to the sort of financial crisis in 2009 to get valuations like that. And it, and it sort of like seems like it's pricing in that kind of recession, and even in Japan, in a way, which is a very cyclical, growth-oriented market, has PEs of ten times. Going back to, you didn't see that PE until like January two thousand nine, but when then the earnings collapse, and so it's like all these sort of cyclical parts, whether small cap U.S., Japan, seeming to price in the recession. Maybe these growth numbers start to get people a little bit more comfortable. Now, small cap earnings has been by far, you know, since the December bottoms, it's up sixteen percent. Um, and, and sort of leading this year, but any other, is your your sense, this global well, you know, recession? Absolutely. Not- well, first of all, you know, I've always been strong on the global, and, you know, it's just kept on getting more and more attractive. I, I, uh, I, I think the bottom is in for emerging markets. I, I, technically, it looks like it in triple bottom. The psychology has changed. And by the way, the psychology, and it's not just foreign, it's also it's this value stock. The major reason why a lot of people are so cautious about value stocks is that how can I, you know, invest in value stocks when everyone knows that interest rates are rising? Well, that everything knows <laughs> statement is not at all taken for granted anymore. In fact, now people will say, I see it's stable. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are those that think the Fed is going to have to, you know, uh, tighten them a bit at the end of the year. But there are also those that think that, uh, you know, it's going to be flat the year. But the, the, the whole the narrative has changed. The narrative now is, yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, it's 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 I, I can't say I'm going to stay away from these value stocks just because I think interest rates are rising, because that may just not be the case anymore. Any other um, sort of. Uh things that you're, you're watching for for the rest of uh yeah, i mean uh, obviously um you know we have a you know a february 15th date on on the government shutdown i do not absolutely think there'll be another government shutdown i think that uh, uh it is quite possible that trump will seek emergency funds uh, i'm sure that uh, uh that that might be blocked by the courts for a while as they examine it so in a way uh, but he will basically put into his base yes you know, I did my best. I declared emergency to try to get funds. And, you know, if I can't do it, I can't do it. And go on to more important things, which we all know is, of course, the China negotiations. And there is some movement there. Uh, and uh, the most important thing, and I've said, I said this, you know, you know, a- a- after the, the Powell pivot at the end of last year, that, um, you know, he could blame Powell for the bad stock market in uh, December. He cannot blame Powell anymore. <laughs> I mean, Powell did everything 
the equity market could possibly want. So, you know, anything that goes wrong from a policy perspective is on Trump's shoulders. And, um, uh, you know, he certainly knows that if he imposes 25 percent tariffs and we don't come to a reconciliation or at least another big delay uh, uh, to look to work on this, uh, that uh, the decline in the stock market and there would be a decline uh, is on is on him. And uh, that's been one of his pride and joys over, you know, his tenure is how good the stock market has been. He, he can't afford to give that up. Very good, Professor. Always great to get your opinion. Thanks for uh, thanks for some Thank commentary. You. Very good. So with Lee Chen, we have in uh, in the studio with us Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree, going to join us for the second half of the conversation with John Davi of Astoria Advisors, uh, who's an ETF strategist and a portfolio manager. We'll, we'll get to John's take in a second. But Lee Chen, Professor Siegel just ended with, you know, the, the Fed doesn't have an ex- – uh, uh, Trump doesn't have uh, – can't blame Powell. Uh, it's all on China. And we've been getting your take on just the Chinese take on what's happening. Um, but maybe – any you know sort of color sort of this new this week we saw Trump saying we're making great progress. You had a few headlines on China saying yes we're making progress. Any other takes uh, for your expectations what you what you see happening? I think um, uh, my expectation is similar to what we talked before. I I do believe the politics in both countries are uh, is pressuring for a potential deal. Yet I still believe that a lot of conflicts could go on and. This week's news actually illustrates both. So China's vice um, premier visited. Uh, actually, in Chinese media, there was a funny uh, video going on where the the vice media uh, premier of China says that, oh, we want to import 5 million tons of uh, soybean from U.S. every day. And then President Trump says, like, oh, yeah, 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 we're happy. And then um, social media just in China at least went, uh, you know, kind of on fire because – in general, I think China imported um, 16 or 17 million tons of uh, soybean from China. So it cannot be 5 million tons per day. But this illustrates that uh, this fun kind of, you know, poke on, on the leaders illustrates that, you know, at the people at the top, they really don't pay too much attention to the details, you know, how much soybean, you know, indeed China imports from It's It's really setting the tone. If if they, you know, want to meet, want to make a deal, then people in the lower level who know all the details of the trade uh, disputes will will work it out. Right? Even though they don't have to really know how much, you know, China imports from. But the other news uh in the headline in China is whether US or I think uh, they want to extradite the daughter of Huawei, who is also the chief investment uh, finance officer of um, of Huawei, uh, from Canada to China, and that is also in so- Chinese social media news. I think a lot of these little disputes will still go on, whether we have a you know immediate deal or not. But immediate deal will set a tone to resolve these future uh, uh, disputes. Yeah, it does seem uh, Professor Eagles thinks emerging markets at the bottom. I know that's one of the themes that we're going to talk about with John. So let me just bring on John for, for the conversation. Well, John, welcome back to our program. Good to be here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Um, so you're sort of recently started Astoria Advisors. Um, sort of remind our listeners a little bit. So you, you came from the Morgan Stanley Institutional ETF team, did a lot of work with institutional clients working on ETFs. Uh, before that, had done some work on a lot of work at Factor Investing, at, at Merrill, uh, sort of equity derivatives, macro strategy. So talk a little bit about what got you again to join, sort of create your own ETF company, and, and how do you see the landscape uh, for, for Astoria? Um, so we are um, an investment manager firm, like you said. We, you know, exclusively use ETFs. Uh, you know, I the goal was always to be an entrepreneur for me, and the goal was to always uh, kind of get to the buy side. So I started this firm, and it was a way to kind of accomplish both goals. Uh, I've been working with ETFs, you know, since 2000. Uh, I was the ETF research analyst at Merrill Lynch um, when it first came out. Uh, ETFs were part of the derivatives uh, group at, at Merrill Lynch at the time, and uh, it was a really good group to work in. A lot of famous people kind of came out of that group. Um, some big um, people in, in our industry, um, famous economists and strategists. And, uh, yeah, so always, you know, kind of had a passion for, you know, to be an entrepreneur and, you know, decided to name my firm after where I came uh, from, which is Astoria, Queens. And uh, I'm sure you'll appreciate this analogy, but 
it's been the ultimate value trade for me. Um, kind of taught me, you know, what you kind of read in the academic literature is how a factor can be out of favor for, you know, years and decades. So, um, you know, my neighborhood, uh, you know, has exploded. Obviously, we've got Google coming here. Sorry, uh, we have Amazon coming here in a couple of years. And, uh, you know, Queens residents are really excited about that. And, uh, you know, had you held on to property in Astoria or Long Island City, you would have been uh, handsomely rewarded, um, you know, over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades. So uh, it was out of favor for a while, and it's obviously the market realized its value. So well, we were hoping Amazon was going to come to Philly. We didn't We didn't quite <laughs> get that uh, support for our, our real estate market. But I view Philly as a real estate uh, cheap value play on the on, uh, suburb of New York, too. Absolutely. Um, so, so, tell, so one always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Got into ETFs early and sort of noticed that. I mean, how do you see the landscape for ETF strategists, portfolio managers like yourself? Like, how are you approaching the market? Like, who are you sort of trying to to serve? Okay, so our clients currently run. We we oversee about 150 million in assets. Uh, the firm's been around for about a year and a half. Um, so we have uh, a combination of clients. One is we've got family offices that are hiring us to be their outsourced CIO, um, where we'll make all their investment decisions, again, using the construct of ETFs. Um, and then we have like financial advisors that will use our models and our signals in order to deploy uh, in their portfolios. So, you know, I, I think, obviously, I'm, I'm bullish on ETFs. I've put together a firm based on it, so I'm very biased. But... If you look at you know some of the you know statistics you know how much mutual funds are out there still I think this number is still something like you know twenty billion dollars in mutual funds globally um, you know I, I still think there's a much more uh, kind of long way to go um, you know for the CTF bull market um, you know I, I, in terms of like our investment discipline it's it's macro plus quantitative we we you know mix both together um, I feel like you know I mean just kind of being a quan in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, we're very evidence-based, so all our decisions are backed by data. Uh, we mix macro because I think you do have to have, you know, kind of a feel, um, you know, for what's going on in terms of, you know, the Fed and the economy. And, you know, so I think mi- mixing both works well. And then the expression that we use, like using factor tilts, um, you know, which is a lot of research that shows, you know, you can get higher up on the efficient frontier if you mix a portfolio of factors and you harvest them in a low-cost format, you know, over longer periods of time. Um, you know, so we certainly subscribe to that. And, you know, we just know anecdotally from the way we've run our models that it's worked in the short time that, you know, our firm's been around. So, you know, just I think it's, it, you know, this starting this firm, like you couldn't start a firm like this 10, 15 years ago, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, when when I look at one of our portfolios, you know, multi-asset, cross-asset, you know, stocks, bonds, commodities, alternatives, you know, we, we have probably 10,000 line items in a portfolio of just, you know, 10 to 12 ETFs. I mean, it, it's truly amazing. You just could not, you know, have a firm that would do that. You would need, um, you know, a lot of different traders and PMs and analysts and, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's made... It's given the ability for someone like me to kind of start a firm like this. So very bullish on ETFs. We uh, we obviously share that view and uh, and are sort of close friends and, and collaborators on some of the things that you're doing. And so it's is there um, as as you think about just uh, any other things about the sort of strategist opportunities and any other things that you thought uh, people should should think about in terms of why why the ETF strategist versus say other how you see other people what other sort of legacy types of structures people are using. Well, I think, um, I mean, last year was a perfect example of how inefficient the mutual fund product is. You had a market that, you know, was down for, for most of the year. Uh, I think global, you know, Acqui was down, you know, 10 12%, U.S. down 5 to 7 So most mutual funds were down for the year, but something like 60% of mutual funds paid out of capital gain. It's just truly amazing how anyone still uses it. And frankly, you know, if it wasn't for this eight-year bull market, you know, nine-year bull market where a lot of people are sitting on gains, you know, I think there would have been a lot more outflows from mutual funds. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, it's it's cheap, it's liquid, it's trans, you know, tr- transparent, tax efficient. I do think our edge compared to, let's say, you know, some of our competitors, let's say, would be 
um, you know, an ETF strategist that has like a strategic asset allocation where they're just using really low cost ETFs um, and they're u- just using stocks and bonds. I mean, there are things that we do to the portfolio to try and dampen the volatility of uh, of which worked, you know, really well last year because, you know, obviously last year volatility rose pretty, you know, significantly. Um, so, you know, we would argue that, you know, kind of what we do is a real differentiator in the value add compared to just, you know, strategic asset allocation that you can get from, you know, a robo-advisor, let's say, or a traditional strategist that's just using plain vanilla cheap ETFs. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, if you look at the robo-advisors, they, they are taking active management bets. I mean, they, you know, I looked at one point in time, there was like an, an energy ETF, and, and, you know, you typically don't have a strategic asset allocation using like an energy ETF. Um, you know, so I think it's for, for them, it's just about rules-based, systematic, you know, kind of keep costs low, which is kind of what we do. Um, you know, we just add more asset classes to the portfolio to kind of try and smooth out the volatility um, of, of, like I said, it worked well last year, and I think it will work going forward. Um, you know, when you had this QE-induced liquidity bull market, you know, kind of you could be outright long beta and, and use cheap ETFs and, the market went up, you know, six, seven years straight, and that worked fine. But I think we're in a new regime going forward. So, very good. So maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about that macro outlook. Like, how do you how do you look across across asset classes? You, you mentioned you would have ten thousand night items, and you'd have to what you're getting able to accomplish today is sort of much simpler. But how do you view that world of of how you're from a top down asset allocation perspective today? Okay. So we put out um, a report called uh, 10 ETFs for 2019. Um, I've been doing this kind of ETF outlook for the last uh, six, seven years. And, um, you know, it's kind of like our year ahead piece. But, you know, we're, we don't, we try and not think of it as forecasting. And we try and think of it more like, okay, where are there are scenarios where we think there's a pr- high probability of these scenarios, you know, working out. So, um, let me just take a step back. So in 2018, we were very skeptical on the market. Um, so at the start of last year, we, we said, you know, and, th- and this was a very out of consensus call, but we said the Fed was behind the curve, liquidity was declining, and we thought the year-over-year change in earnings would decline. So that was out of consensus. It became consensus, and I believe we had a bear market last year. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, you can't just look at the classic definition of, like, a 20% decline. Uh, I mean, we almost declined. Like, the S&P was down 15% in one point in December, right? So I think we did have a bear market. And so so the message from us for this year is that we're just much more constructive. And I know um, Professor explained a lot of that, you know, kind of um, bullishness earlier. Um, So I, I think, you know, stocks were priced for a recession last year, and I don't think we're in a recession and I think stocks got very cheap. I think there's, you know, there was value there. Their equity risk premiums were, you know, favorable. So we kind of turned bullish in, um, you know, mid to late December. And, you know, our outlook, which is this 67-page slide deck, although we did use a lot of emojis um, and, and cartoons in this year's uh, presentation, but, you know, our outlook was put out in the first week of January in 67 pages, so it takes a little bit of time to put that together. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the idea is you want to buy when you're in, you know, the, the, the bear market, right? You try and catch the upswing. So, but to, to summarize, I would say that the, the views are as follows. One is, you know, we want to mix factors together because, again, the evidence shows that you can get higher up on the fishing frontier. So we, we prefer quality. We prefer defensive-oriented stocks, you know, low volatility, uh, value. Um, so those are the kind of factors that we are utilizing. And, and there's, you know, academic research that shows, you know, why these work and what their sharp ratios are. Um, I think the time to own cyclicals when the economy was accelerating globally, which it, it was in 2017 and, and maybe the early part of 2018, but I think we have a desynchronized economy. I think the U.S. is, you know, it's okay. Uh, China's slowing. Uh, you know, Europe is kind of messy. So, you know, I think that's when you want to own these three factors, you know, low vol, quality, and, and, and value, because historically they do work well, um, you know, at this point of the cycle. 
in general, I think you, you still want to own alternatives, um, alternatives that you know kind of carry well in the portfolio and that are diversifiers. Uh, things like merger arbitrage, I think, you know, work well in the portfolio. Uh, there's a short component in, in merger R, which you know is a nice diversifier. I think like market neutral strategies, which are inversely correlated. Uh, I think that you know makes sense for us. Um, you know, I think owning uh, a lower in your portfolio beta, you know, kind of is something that we put as one of our key themes for the year. Um, I think, you know, capital preservation, you know, kind of cash is still fairly attractive, I think. Uh, I mean, if you just think about the returns that we talked about, you, you mentioned before, I mean, we're already up like, you know, 7-8% in the month of January. Um, I mean, 20% would be, you know, Professor Siegel said 20%. I mean, that would be an incredible year for the market. Um, you know, just owning cash, I think, is still attractive. So if you own enough equities, you're you're, you're happy about owning it. But just having a little bit of uh, cash in your portfolio, which per unit of risk, I think, is, is still attractive, um, even with this rally. So that's kind of how we're thinking about things. Um, let me you know, uh, just let me just reintroduce who, our guest here. We're talking with John Davi of Astoria Advisors, sort of ETF strategist, talking about his sort of big investment themes of, of 2019 and and some of the commentary he puts out. Um, so there's a lot a lot in there, John. So maybe we will just sort of drill into a few areas of, of what you said. Um, so so there's sort of this. You know, you went into 2018 with this risk-off type environment. Like, how do you when you're thinking about judging the factors that you, you looked at that got you more cautious on 2018 and say, you know, maybe now that the markets were sold off at the end of December, you became a little bit more optimistic. What are the sort of signals that you were looking at that, that had you think about that differently? Um, things like, you know, financial conditions, liquidity measures, you know, kind of live or OIS spreads. Um, I mean, the emerging market that was basically, you know, destroyed, you know, last summer. Um, so if you think about, you know, kind of the order of the bear market and, you know, the, the strategist at Morgan Stanley had a very good call with this rolling bear market thesis, which I think was spot on. But, you know, the way that would work is that, you know, it, it kind of starts with the most illiquid asset class. So you think about, you know, kind of Bitcoin was kind of Q1. Um, the VIX ETN blow up was in Q1, um, you know, fairly liquid asset class. Um, you know, then kind of it, it started going to like emerging market debt, emerging market equities kind of midway through the year, um, kind of large cap you know, growth stocks in, you know, September, um, and then kind of ended with, you know, the broad index level in December, um, you know, when literally S&P was down 15%, you know, at one point in December. But there is liquidity measures. I mean, most, you know, you've got like the Chicago Fed Financial Conditions Index, um, LIBOR OIS spreads. Um, those kind of anecdotally, I would say, you know, and then if you just look at fundamentals in terms of like earnings, earnings revisions, um, I mean, Citigroup has like a global earnings revision ratio index, which was inflecting lower constantly throughout, uh, you know, 20, uh, 2018. Um, you know, emerging markets were trading fairly poorly. Uh, I mean, China was, you know, some of these Chinese internet stocks and, you know, were down very, very significant last year. So it didn't take much to realize, you know, you, you were in this bear market. Um, but, you know, I kind of ultimately... Uh, you know, just kind of when you see some of these stats, like, you know, the worst month for S&P in December of last year, worst month since like 2008, you're like, wow, like, is it really as bad as 2008? And then, you know, valuations, you know, throughout this cycle, S&P earnings kind of troughed at like 16, right? Throughout, you know, going back to like 2010, you know, we got down to like 14. And, you know, I think that's relatively attractive for the risk you take on, especially just owning, you know, kind of, you know, U.S. large-cap stocks. Um, so, but, you know, I, I haven't talked a lot about emerging markets, but, you know, that is, you know, one of our key kind of overweight areas. Um, I think if you think about what has happened in the last few weeks with a more dovish uh, Fed and, um, you know, a much more patient Fed, you know, lower rates, I mean, that, that's the kind of, blessing for uh, emerging markets. I mean, it's very, very attractive. You know, there's some emerging market value ETFs we have, which are value quality tilted, I mean, with a nine PE ratio. I mean, that's like super, super cheap. So, and, and with the macro front of a, of a more patient Fed, a weaker dollar. So, 
So U.S. and EM is kind of the, the key areas that we like. Uh, we're avoiding, you know, Europe and Japan. Just don't think that, you know, relative to, you know, if you can buy the S&P, you know, fairly high-quality country at, you know, a couple times more expensive than Europe, like why, why would you take on the risk of, like, European equities and, you know, stuff with Brexit? I mean, you've got such an impressive technology sector in the U.S. and, you know, really cool stuff happening in, in the healthcare industry. So we, we much more prefer, like, EM in U.S. than, than Europe and Japan. So, John, um, I, I sort of was dominating some of the conversation. The first segment, I want to bring Lee Chen in for the conversation a little bit more her second half. Uh, so, Lee Chen, what, we, we heard a little bit of John and his outlook and themes. Uh, what, what do you want to, to drill in a little bit more on? Hi, John. Um, very interesting. Thank you. When you mentioned that, uh, you know, you favor three uh, factors, as you, you know, we in Wisdom Tree Multi-Factor Strategies, we focus on a lot of the uh, factors you mentioned as well. But um, if I... If I remember correctly, you were saying uh, you, your outlook is good for lower uh, quality and um, valuation for the next year. Yes. Um, so actually I actually want to drill down a little bit. So I wonder like why you think lower is still continue to perform. The main reason I ask is that you know lower has been really popular in the last couple of years, and in terms of the lower spread, the valuation spread for lower has been a little bit you know on the high side, but. Can you like help understand a little bit in terms of your thinking? Sure, it's it's. Um, I would say it's more of like a diversification. Um, so I think about like when the global economy is is slowing, which I think it is. Um, so you know, momentum. Let's say it's the best you know sharp ratio going back you know fifty seventy five years, right? But momentum could be very volatile. Um, and then I think you know something like. Um, you know, size, let's say, like, you know, that also is more subject to, like, a strong, a stronger economy. But you know, I think anecdotally, like, when you, when the global economy is accelerating, people will reward, you know, companies, uh, high-quality companies, you know, more so than lower-quality companies. And I think there's more of, like, a, uh, of a buffer for, for the value factor because the market hasn't necessarily realized its potential. And then low vol is just kind of like a complement to, you know, the quality and the value component that, you know, that we want to harvest. Um, it's but, uh, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Uh, so uh, just to drill down a little bit, like when you're thinking about a portfolio for the clients, do you usually think about low vol as like another complement in asset allocation, but not necessarily in equity? So, for example, do you? I was thinking in two ways. One way is you can, you know, put low wall in the multi-factor strategy, or you usually think that, you know, multi-factor, you still prefer to have, you know, similar beta, but when you're talking to clients, depending on what client wants or what you think he needs, that so you're putting a little bit low wall uh, allocation. Like, which approach do you usually think? Uh, we would start off with, you know, kind of what the client is looking to achieve relative to, like, their list, their risk tolerance. And then we would try and match up where, you know, kind of our macroeconomic framework aligns to. Um, you know, I, I guess the, the answer is, you know, it would really depend on what we feel more comfortable. Like, we didn't own low vol in, like, 20, you know, 16, 2017, because you wanted to own, you know, more higher-risk strategy. You wanted to own higher vol, um, you know, when the global economy is, is accelerating. So... We, you know, we tend to think of factors as like more tactically, you know, shifting depending on where we are in the cycle. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, another follow up is that, uh, as you know, I recently changed jobs and I was trying to, um, you know, I, I was trying to move my retirement account into a place I could access to ETF, which uh, ETF has been, you know, notoriously hard to get in 401ks and what i realized that is the transaction cost for mutual funds if you were to move is huge it's like a 49 dollars per trade for mutual funds versus etf a lot of times you get you know for free but do you see any like legal uh, changes coming from the government in terms of making etfs more accessible to in retirement accounts um, I don't know if it's, uh, I mean, I, I wish they were personally because, um, you know, I have a lot of family and friends that suffer from having to choose, you know, 
1.5% you know, mutual funds in their retirement account, which I'll never understand because if you think about a 20, 30-year time horizon to pay 1.5% for a mutual fund just seems crazy. Um, but obviously your, your old firm has been harping on that uh, for a while. But I, I don't know on the regulatory front, but that would be the bull case to get ETFs from you know, $5 trillion globally over wherever we are now to you know, $10 trillion, obviously, because the 401k market is, is super... Uh, you know, is, is pretty big. We're talking with John Dobby of Astoria Advisors, sort of ETF strategist, talking about his sort of big investment themes of, of 2019 and, and some of the commentary he puts out. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, when you think about the tax efficiency of the structure, you haven't really seen, you know, certainly in the tax protected accounts, it's sort of less of an issue. The intraday trading certainly is sort of, you know, you're not encouraging retirees or retirement that can't count to do intraday trading. So it loses some of those quote-unquote features. Now, not even, you don't need the ETF benefit for the intraday. It's just a sort of wrapper. Um, so it's, it's an interesting question on what, it, will it, how much does it solve the issues, but certainly more and more of the innovative strategies come out in that form versus the, the older structure. And I think the platforms, there are some platforms that allow the 401k, you know, we sort of use our own uh, ETFs and our own 401k. So there are definitely platforms that can do it, um, but it's certainly the uh, the legacy providers have no incentive to change the platform. So it is a tough it's a tough one. Yeah, e- even something simple like fractional shares, like you know, with a mutual fund, you can buy fractional shares, and you can't really do that with an ETF. So even simple things like this, I've heard have been you know like problematic for like four hundred one k. Yeah, or you know, you think about your four hundred one k. You know, you can um, you know, there's like certain cutoffs. By the time you know you you have to put in your order for the day for a mutual fund versus an ETF, so I think even some simple things like that need to kind of get uh, fixed. So, John, we talked a lot. Uh, sort of getting back to some of your your macro views, um, you know, we talked a lot about uh, equities and sort of thinking about emerging markets over, say, the developed world from basically evaluation and and, and thinking sort of maybe you're, t- you're getting paid more for the risk there. Maybe briefly on what, what you're looking across fixed income and how do you think about, you know, the – the I look at the fixed income market and, and sort of the duration keeps rising for the traditional aggregate index and so maybe some – the highest levels of interest rate risk for the traditional ag, yet the compensation, sort of the yield spreads that you pick up for taking duration is sort of like the lowest almost ever. I mean, that's not exactly true, but it's 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 directly – uh, in that spirit, like how do you think about that, and and sort of where where you're paid to take fixed income risk today? So good question. I mean, we you know we we're bond bears for most of 2018. We basically said try and avoid most of um, the fixed income market, and you know we put out this report in October, basically saying you know if the year were to end in October, that the bonds would have their worst year since 1994. And, you know, almost like clockwork, the bond market started rallying, and, and it did have this impressive rally in the last seven weeks. You know, you can't make it up, but the, the limited aggregate bond index was up one bit for the year, like literally one bit for the year. Um, so I think the, you know, it, it, it goes back to, you know, kind of what you're trying to do in your portfolio. I think bonds are used, um, you know, largely to kind of hedge equity risk, and I think there's other ways to hedge equity risk in the alternatives market. Um, if it's to produce income, you know, there's some segments of the market that I think are attractive in fixed income. So, you know, we we like things like muni bonds and kind of um, revenue-producing uh, muni infrastructure bonds. So you think about, like, you know, we have this airport here, LaGuardia Airport, so if they issue a bond to kind of fund the project, um, you know, it's backed by the actual airport. So, like, to me, that seems attractive. Uh, we we don't really like traditional kind of credit. I, I know that, you know, so risk on for the year, and it's very strong, right? And a high-yield, you know, credit is up, you know, whatever, 4% for the month. But, you know, I just don't think where we are in the cycle, um, you know, I, I know it's in a late part of the cycle, but I just, I'd rather not own something like high-yield risk because I don't think you're really kind of compensated for that. I think the yield curve is so flat that, you know, you kind of not really incentivize, largely speaking, to go out the duration curve, which is kind of why we said, like, we like cash, because, I mean, even though rates are kind of significantly fallen, you know, I, I think, you know, to get like 2%, 2.5% for taking on no credit risk, no duration, you know, it's, it seems fairly attractive. Um, you know, there, there's been points of time in this cycle where, you know, people were buying 
bonds for growth and buying, you know, high dividend yielding stocks and, and, and low vol stocks for income. I mean, it's just this bizarre kind of backwards um, thing that we had. And, you know, I just think that, you know, if you think about how much money was put into bonds during this period, you know, over $2 trillion, it just doesn't seem like a good risk reward. Um, so I, I don't know. Is that it kind of is that aligned with your view, Jeremy? Is that what you're kind of uh, thinking as well? Yeah. Let me just reintroduce our guest one more time for people listening in their cars. We're talking with John Davi of Astoria Portfolio Advisors about his outlook uh, across these sort of themes and and how he's allocating his his client portfolios. I mean, I think the the certainly the looking at the short end is is one of those areas we're focused a lot on just given that my comment on I don't think there's a lot of compensation there um I, I think there was last year at the end of the year you saw a lot of rotation out of high yield and so your comment on um sort of not not that interested in high yield I mean we're, we're thinking about getting more selective in high yield for sure like if, if in some ways you get some equity beta exposure there and certainly saw high yield spreads come down as equities did well in in the first, in January um, but we're definitely getting more selective within high yield talking a lot about factor tilting and, and have done some work on how those factor indexes did very very well last year everybody thought it was be a good year for active managers but sort of factor investing in high yield I think has been a, a very strong category and, and things that we're talking a lot about uh, and and uh, I, mean, I think the other the area is that you're talking about, and I think it's it's interesting in in your outlook and theme. There's you know you talked about alternatives as just this other area you can do more with in in uh, this sort of ETF structure. Now I'm curious. You have a few different pieces on sort of broad commodities and, and gold in particular. Um, what what were maybe thoughts on including gold today? Like what what's uh, the role that, that that serves for you? Yeah, so gold is uh, more of like a portfolio diversifier. It kind of dampens volatility. So in Q4 last year, you know, for the whole quarter, S&P was down 12 and, and gold was up 8. So it did what it's supposed to do. It, it kind of carries well. So if you think about the options market, you buy, you know, or put option. And, you know, if it doesn't necessarily work your timing, you know, the option just kind of starts to bleed and decay. Um, you know, we're looking for strategies that, you know, will – will be able to maintain in the portfolio and not necessarily bleed as rapidly as, as uh, you know, an equity vol position. Um, I think commodities are, are, are attractive in the sense that, you know, they, they're uncorrelated to both stocks and bonds. They serve as, you know, a hedge against inflation. Um, you know, it obviously, I, we believe it has to be tactically traded, so you physically either need to kind of go in and out. Uh, and we're not market timers, but, you know, we like to kind of manage our risk budget or sin. If you're going to sin, you sin a little, as like Cliff says. So either you got to tactically manage it or you have to use an ETF to kind of tactically manage this. And there are some strategies out there that will, you know, kind of go in and out of broad-based commodities, whether it's oil, agriculture, um, depending on kind of where volatility levels are. So, you know, look, I mean, inflation expectations, you know, kind of, rapidly fell last year. So oil, obviously, and the rest of the commodities market fell pretty significantly. But, you know, they are kind of rebounding. If you look at five-year, five-year uh, break-even inflations, you know, they're kind of rallying sharply in, in January. So uh, I, I still think it's something that you want to own. You know, our whole premise is like, okay, if you take a, you know, a 70-30 portfolio, you know, north of 90% of the portfolio risk is going to be dominated by your equity component. You know, if you just take like 10% of that and move that into commodities or gold, you know, you can substantially reduce your portfolio risk contribution from the equity side. So, you know, that that's kind of why we look at commodities. And, and then just to go back to the fixed income for a second, uh, I, I think what you're referring to, Jeremy, and some of the strategies you may have is, you know, applying like a quality filter, which I think quality and, um, you know, kind of works in, in most different asset classes. Um, so we're not opposed to kind of applying like a quality filter in, in the corporate bond space. Um, we just simply think, okay, what, what did bonds do historically? And historically, they gave you very high income. They gave you a good hedge to equities, right? And they provide some element of carry. And, you know, you, you, you're not really getting most of that. I mean, I know it did well in Q4 bonds, but for, for most of the year, bond investors were very, very disappointed, okay? And... You know, there are periods in time, if you look at the research, I mean, 10-year periods where both stocks and bonds are positively correlated by, you know, 0.5, 0.6. 
Um, you know, it's it's more of in, in the last seven, eight years where you've had this negative correlation. But anyway, the point is that yeah. the stock bond correlation fluctuates, so you just need to be careful. So that's why we'd go into the alternatives market to kind of hedge our portfolio risk. And then just to produce income, there's a few select areas, like I mentioned, munis or, you know, there's things you can do like call overriding that'll give you, you know, some uh, income. So no, we, yeah, we I try think... and reverse engineer the risk characteristics of fixed income. And I think that's a better risk award than just going out and buying like high yield credit or IG corporate bonds. Um, I mean, it remains to be seen, right? Last year with a Fed hiking rates, it just, it was kind of a no brainer and we were bond bears, but you know, we'll see what the Fed does this year. And maybe it's not as clear cut. Maybe there is like a bull case for bonds now, but it's not like a layup is what my point is. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, I think the, um, the certainly the the just the Fed hiking rates to where you're getting on on sort of cash like uh, sort of shortest duration type Treasury paper two two four I mean that's a reasonable just sort of risk free cash rate right it's uh, you don't have to worry about taking any risk there so I think that that that's helping reset all the and in some ways that was one of the things that caused the equity markets to say wow the risk free rate's going up and now there's more competition I, I agree with that. Um, you, you mentioned the start, sort of merger ARB as a category, and, and that's sort of one of these alternative buckets. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you expect, how you think the long-term returns on that sort of category works, and, and uh, just what you expect from that. Sure. So um, so let's talk about equities first, because I think you have to kind of keep everything in, in, in big picture. So equities, let's say, well, I mean, according to, to the research you've done, uh, you know, 6% real rate adjusted over the last, you know, 200 years or, or yeah. 5%. Um, but we, let's inflate that a little bit because, you know, obviously, we've, we just had 7% in the first, you know, <laughs> a month for the year. But let, let's say, you know, if your expectation is uh, 7 8% for, for equities, uh, you know, with a 15 vol, um, you know, let's say bonds, you're expecting a total return of, well, I mean, I guess the 10-year Treasury, you know, 2.2. So you're not really getting much from the Treasury market. But let's say the volatility is, you know, less than half that of equity market. You know, something like merger ARB, I think you can try and reasonably capture, you know, 4 or 5%, um, you know, return with, you know, similar kind of levels of volatility. So, you know, I, I think that's kind of our expectation for what we're trying to capture. I mean, obviously, we use a rules-based systematic ETF that does it indirectly for us, but, you know, kind of like I like the idea that, you know, somebody's acquiring a, a company and they're going to pay a premium for it, and there's a short component uh, to it to hedge out market risk. Uh, I think it's good to have shorts in your portfolio, even for, you know, an ETF, you know, long-only portfolio indirectly. I, I think that's a nice diversifier to have. So, you know, it's something that's like kind of idiosyncratic. I mean, obviously a deal can break, which can be disruptive and you're, um, you know, you'll be negatively impacted by it. But, you know, it has nothing really to do with, like, China or trade tariffs or, you know, Trump's tweets or, you know, payroll numbers. Like, it's just kind of very idiosyncratic. So we like having idiosyncratic risks in, in our portfolio. Actually, I used to uh, st- um, study and run part of the merge up uh, sleeve of, of- my old company. Actually, I have a, do have a question though. Um, when you say merge job, do you focus on US merge job or your merge job is more global? And the other thing was that sometimes it does impact. I remember there was a deal, uh, is it NXP, which China didn't approve, so it didn't go through, I think. Um, Correct. Yeah, there's certainly like antitrust regulations, and but I guess what I was trying to say is that, you know, like the Ch- Trump. China trade tariffs, you know, <laughs> not not directly. It'll impact whether that one specific deal goes through. But yeah, I mean, there's um, obviously you know antitrust governments, uh, you know, kind of can can stop a deal from going on. Um, but the strategy that we have is is just U.S. for now. But I think there are ones that look at globally, and you know, I think you, you take more risk globally because you don't know what you know South Africa government you know, antitrust rules or regulations, but, you know, in theory, you should also be compensated for that risk, too. Um, we're certainly not opposed to a global one. The, the U.S. one we have is fairly large and liquid, so we tend to use that one. 
Um, any other of the major – so we've talked a lot about uh, sort of macro themes, positioning, about three minutes left in, in the program. Any sort of high-level things you would sort of like to, to make sure we, we sort of talk about in terms of to talk about your worldview? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, th- like there's no rate hikes um, priced into the market for this year, and I, and I think that's incorrect. Um, I think, you know, there's more of a rate cut priced in than a rate hike. And I just think that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I I think I'd be surprised if there's no rate cut by the end of the year. And I think there are multi-asset portfolio implications for, you know, each scenario. So if you think about like a decision tree, right, so you, you got no rate hikes, a cut, and then a hike. And I think, you know, there's very, very different portfolio implications for each one of these which, you know, we argue why kind of being more dynamic and tactical makes sense, the ability to kind of react. So if there's no rate hike, I believe that means that the economy is slower. If the economy is slower, I think that would lend more towards owning, you know, quality, low vol, defensives. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you could still stay overweight equities, but you want to diversify, you know, into in, uh, emerging markets. Um, if there is a rate cut this year, I, th- I think that's actually very dangerous because then I, that means that the economy is not strong. And I don't know why people want a rate cut or why there's any probability in that. I think in that case, you want to be very overweight bonds, very underweight equities, and you want to own a ton of more cash and a lot more alternatives. Um, and then if there is a rate hike, which is what I believe there should be, I think that indicates that the economy is strong. But depending on what goes on with, you know, China and how the global economy is doing, it still goes back to me kind of wanting to own defenses. Because they're really the, the time where you want to own cyclicals is when the global economy is accelerating, and I don't see that. I see China slowing. I think Europe is, you know, kind of messy. And, you know, the U.S. is okay. So I think, you know, those, those are all three profound, you know, kind of implications. And the bottom line, Jeremy, is that we don't have um, room – if we do enter a recession, the Fed has no room to cut, right? Interest rates are at very, very lows, a very, um, you know, very, very low. So I think we need to hike in order to be able to, like, have additional room for the next, you know, recession whenever that comes. We're not forecasting one. We don't really know. Yep. We- I don't think, you know, anyone can predict it, but it just, you know, we need to do it. John, it's been a pleasure having you on. We're talking to John Dobby of Astoria advisors. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Lee Chen running the studio. Thanks for joining us. Everybody, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks for producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.